Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. Ghostthropology presents discussion of ghost stories and beliefs, and how we share ghost folklore, and importantly, how belief in the supernatural reflects who we are. While I don't know when or where or how you are listening, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. So I'm once again joined by Michelle Hanks. We're trying something a little bit different today. College campuses have a long history of ghost stories associated with them. Michelle Hanks currently teaches at New York University, and it has some particularly interesting stories. So today we're going to talk about those stories. We're going to get into what we think makes them interesting and perhaps what makes them persist. Hopefully this format will work out well, and it may set the format that we use occasionally in the future. So welcome back, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. For starters, I guess uh, we should say, because most people know ghost stories of the campus that they attended, you did not attend New York University. No, I, I didn't. I've, I've taught there for eight years. For my undergrad, I went to Mount Holyoke College and we have some ghosts, but I didn't actually remember my ghost, the ghosts of my campus terribly well. So yeah, like the NYU ghosts are the ghosts I'm in some ways most familiar with, which isn't to say very familiar, but a little bit more familiar. Well, to be fair, you've been at NYU twice as long as you were at Mount Holyoke, so... That's true. It's a very good point. Longer than I've been at any other institution, in fact. For this episode, I did a lot more research than I did for our previous conversations. And it was really interesting. I, I read a lot about the, the history of NYU. I learned things I didn't know about my own institution, which was fun. I also talked to a bunch of students, a bunch of other of my colleagues who are faculty, some staff, and some alums who I either like many, many of my close friends are alums of NYU. So I checked in with them about their experiences with ghosts. So yeah, that's it's been interesting. In order to kind of set the stage, can you tell us a little bit about New York University? How is it set up? How does it tend to function? Uh, what's the student culture like? That way we can have a better idea of how these ghost stories may function within that. Absolutely. So NYU is a big school, obviously. I think I think there are about 20,000 students, maybe a little bit more across its colleges um, at this point. So when it was founded originally, um, well, not originally, but for a long time, NYU is based around Washington Square Park and in, in, in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. In the last 30 years, it's expanded pretty significantly. So in the 90s, it grew past Greenwich Square and encompassed Union Square. And in more recent years, it's moved also into downtown Brooklyn. They have a large campus in downtown Brooklyn, like near Brooklyn Heights um, in the metro tech area. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a university that has multiple colleges. Um, and each one has its own kind of distinct culture. Like on the one end of the spectrum, you've got Tisch, which is for, you know, students who are very artistic, like the drama kids, the art, the artists, the theater kids. It's got Steinhardt, which is the school of education. It has College of Arts and Science, which is, I think it's largest undergraduate institution. I'm on faculty in arts and science. Um, it has the engineering school in Brooklyn, um, which is where I teach. And it has Gallatin. There's grad. It's it's a big it's a big school. And I think in terms you asked up in terms of like the student experience. I think student experience at NYU is really there are a lot of diverse experiences. Um, I think it varies school to school a little bit. But one of the things I think that's interesting about it is that it's not in my in my impression it's not very much like a typical college experience. Like I think a lot of the folks who attend NYU very much want a New York City experience more so than they want like a typical college campus experience. Like they're coming here, obviously NYU is a great school and like they'll have a good education, um, but like, they're also very attracted to 
New York City and they they want to be part of New York City. And so, yeah, like students are really excited to explore outside of the university. And I think NYU sees itself very much as part of New York City. Like, and, you know, there isn't a bounded campus. Like if you, if you, there's, there are no gates to NYU. Like I remember when I got to college, I was so excited to like go through the main gates of my campus and it felt so magical and beautiful and all of that. There's nothing like that at NYU. Like Washington Square Park is its kind of core visual marker, which of course is, you know, the city, but it's surrounded by NYU. So it feels like NYU. It sounds like it might be more like going to a job than going to a college. Yeah, and I think I think students I think students have really good experiences. Like students seem to really love it, but it's very they're very motivated. Like they want there's something they want to pursue. There's something they're passionate about, be it theater or be it some kind of entrepreneurial vein of engineering. Like they're really excited to kind of get out there and get into New York City which is great. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been ready to do that when I was 18 years old. I would have had a heart attack, but it's, I love that they are able to and ready to. Yeah. I would not have functioned well by myself. I, yeah, same. I would have, I'm like, I, how would I make friends? Like, but, but they, my students all seem like they really thrive and they do really well. Loads of them do like internships in the city starting even in their first semester. Like they're, they're really exciting and really interesting kids, adults. I shouldn't, I don't mean to patronize them. And you say that it's got multiple different colleges. Is this sort of like a uh, Cambridge system where you've got the various different colleges that all function as part of the same university? You might take classes between them, or do students tend to be concentrated in the college that they are part of? They tend to be pretty concentrated in the college they're part of. Um, so if you're a student at Tandon, like let's say you're a I don't know, mechanical engineering student. The vast bulk of your classes are going to take place at Tandon. I think they take a couple, like they can take a couple of classes on Washington Square, but the bulk are, you know, in your your own college. Like your your curriculum is pretty tied to your like if you're an arts and science student, most of your classes are in arts and science. Like and I think some schools, like I think Tisch and Stern, which is our business school, are not. I don't know how easy it is to take classes in Tisch. Like if I was an English major and in College of Arts and Science, I don't know that I could like easily kind of sneak into a drama writing class at, at Tisch. I don't think there's a ton of cross-pollination between them, okay. but they're all quite large. Yeah. My own undergrad school, UC Santa Cruz, was also divided up into different colleges, but there was constant cross-pollination between the colleges. So yeah. And I mean, I went to a small liberal arts college so that, you know, like there was you had a major, but you took so many other classes, right? Mm. Like it was tons of, tons and tons of cross-pollination. Yeah, it's different. So like the camp, the cultures are, I think are quite distinct. Like, and I, yeah, like I, like during the last presidential, like not the, the 2016 presidential election, mm -hmm. there were jokes about like which candidates embodied which school's ethos is like, like, and like they all had like a different candidate. Like one was, oh, like CAS was like the Hillary candidate, uh, like the Hillary campus. Tandon and a weird move for an engineering school was the Bernie school. Like it was, <laughs> yeah, like, so they have like different flavors. I, I think the vital question is which one was the Jeb Bush school though? Yeah, I, I don't remember, sadly. I It's too long. My memory is fading. Maybe Stern. Maybe Stern was that. I don't know. Yeah. Stern has an abnormal number of Texans. So, you know. Yeah, it makes sense. There's good, good connections. So with this kind of unusual campus setting, it sounds like the function of a lot of folklore would be very different there than it would be at other schools. I, mean, I know uh, the stories I'm familiar with from my own university are either directly tied into the history of it or are tied into the way that the people there view themselves as a community. So it'd be interesting to get into some of these stories and see how they reflect NYU. 
Definitely. There are a bunch of ghost stories we could talk about at NYU. But when I was doing this, like kind of when, when I was taking notes and kind of preparing for today, I was struck by the fact that very, very few of the students, like very few of the ghosts who seem to or allegedly haunt NYU seem to be NYU students. The vast bulk of them seem to be sort of ghosts more broadly of New York City. Um, and their association with NYU seems to come when NYU buys the building that they occupy. So in some ways, the ghosts that seem like that are most famously associated almost with NYU seem like almost like acquired ghosts. To me, that was kind of a funny, interesting thing, right? Because in New York City, like, you know, NYU and Columbia are two of the largest landowners, property owners, um, for better or worse. And so, yeah, it was funny that like part of to me, like that, like the acquisition of these ghosts kind of goes hand in hand with them buying property and expanding and kind of moving through the city, which is kind of interesting. Well, there's an interesting parallel there. I spoke with Michelle Pirock, who does a lot of research on um, Colonial Williamsburg. And in our conversations, one thing she brought up was as a lot of northern landowners moved into the south in the second half of the 19th century, there was this notion that people were not just buying houses and buying items to fill those houses, but specifically buying ghosts really? to go with that, which seems to fit in with a 19th century idea that if there's a ghost in your house, it ties you into the history of the location. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, NYU, by virtue of its acquisitions, has gotten some fairly famous ghosts. Like, I think Edgar Allan Poe is one of them. That's a, that's a pretty pretty good ghost acquisition. Yeah. I know when I started doing some initial research, the one that really struck out to me was the Brown Building. Yeah. And the, the Brown Building was the scene of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. So maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah, definitely. I guess we should start with like the history of it a little bit. And I, I apologize if I get anything wrong. Jump it and correct <laughs> me if so. I'm an anthropologist, not a historian. So all the, all the hate mail is going to start rolling in. <laughs> yeah, I know, probably. Okay, so the Brown Building is in, in, it's been part of NYU since 1929. Frederick Brown gifted the building to NYU, and now it's part of its like science building on the Washington Square campus. Before it was owned by NYU, though, of course, it had a, like a a famous kind of infamous past. It housed the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, I think along with several other sweatshops. On March 25th, 1911, there was a major fire in the building. And so the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory itself was like a very exploitative company. In the year leading up to it, there had been loads of protests against problematic labor practices, people being underpaid, unsafe labor conditions, people being locked into their like workplace. And there had been some, you know, changes among companies in New York City. However, the Triangle the triangle Shirtwaist Factory did not like accept any of those changes. It continued the kind of abusive practices. And on the day of the fire, the workers in its factory, um, who were primarily women, were like locked into the factory. There was no communication amongst the floors. Um, and so when there was a fire, there was no real way for the workers to escape. And so 146 factory workers died. 123 of them were women. And the accounts are really horrifying, right? Like there are women jumping out of windows and like kind of crashing into, essentially dying by crashing into the sidewalk outside. I read one article in which the reporter stated that uh, he now had a new sound that he would never be able to forget, which was the sound of bodies hitting concrete. 
Yeah, it sounds absolutely horrible. And at the time, there was an NYU professor who was urging, I think, in the law school, urging like students to go in and try to like save the, as many of the workers as they could. But I, not many women were saved, obviously. So yeah, it has a really horrible, really dark history. The owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory were tried but never convicted of anything, which is kind of horrible to think yeah. about. It was yeah, and so that like that event, obviously, in U.S. history, was like a catalyst for so much like labor, so much. So many positive labor developments, right? So many ways of like protecting workers' rights. In New York City, it's it's still a flashpoint for that. Like every year on the anniversary of the fire, there are commemorative, a variety of commemorations around the, the factory. Like it's still like a very focal point. And uh, like labor unions today also still use it. Like so at NYU, like there's a lot of, many of its workers are undergoing processes of unionization. Part-time adjuncts have unionized, graduate students have unionized, and now um Continuing contract workers with on, on continuing contracts are in the process of unionization. And so this past year, they were holding like a rally and they they used that building as like a focal point for it. So it has like a really powerful kind of history. In terms of ghosts, the ghosts get interesting. If you if you take a ghost walk tour of New York City, and there are tons of them, not all of them are equally good, but many of them, if you're taking a tour of the West Village, will stop there. And so some of the things people say happen in the building, people say that like doors lock, you know, a door, a door will lock while you're in the room of its own volition, presumably like the workers being locked in like a tie to that history. Mm -hmm. People will smell fire or hear like the crackle of flames. One tour company says that if you look in a mirror, I think on the eighth floor, you'll you might see one of the workers and maybe like the flames kind of coming to encompass her. What's interesting about the ghost stories, though, is that there aren't it's hard to pin down the origins of them. Like, it's not really clear who's experienced these things. Like, I don't know anyone on campus who has had a firsthand experience with this. And if you look at like NYU publications, it's not really clear where these stories are coming from. And so one really great book of ghosts, especially of New York City ghosts, is A Haunted History of Invisible Women by um, Leanna Renee Heber and Andrea Jane, James, who mm -hmm. run the Burrows of the Dead ghost tour company in New York City, which in my opinion is like an absolutely fantastic ghost tour company. Like they do impeccable historical research. Like I've taken a number of their tours and like they're so like they they bring newspaper articles from like 1920. Like they're they're very committed to like a, a historically engaged and ethically told kind of ghost story. In their book, they're really critical of how these kinds of stories are circulating about the Triangle Shirt Waste Factory. Like they they see it as ghost tour companies trying to cash in on this and kind of invent hauntings that aren't there. Mm -hmm. They, in their book, and they point to what to an NYU public safety officer named Dennis Croner, who has like a very different kind of narrative of the haunting. Like they for him, like so for him, he he wrote about he he was first he first received media attention in 2015 in a NYU news story called Traces of American Tragedy Inside the Former Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. And in this, he talks he worked he's worked in this building for years. And his story of the haunting is very different than the kind of sensationalistic like flames behind a burning woman or like crackling. For him, it's more like the building has a heavy feeling to it. Like when you go into it, you you sense that there's a dark and a sad history. He hasn't seen anything like like no spectral figures have appeared to him or or anything. It's just more that like when you're there, you're you're cognizant of this kind of heavy history weighing on you and you feel it. In their tour, that's how they kind of talk about it too. That it's you can like obviously like this is a horrible dark historical event and you its presence is really real and like there's a palpableness to it but like this kind of they're they're pretty critical of the kind of sensationalistic narratives around that 
that site, which is interesting. One thing that's interesting about that to me is there's a similar dynamic at work at the California missions, all of which Mm. are said to be haunted. But there's the people who will tell you all manner of frequently over-the-top stories, Mm -hmm. Uh, some of them clearly inspired more by recent television shows than by anything anybody's experienced. Yeah. But then there's other people who are often very critical of that and will simply say, you know, you have almost exactly what you said, a sense of heaviness, the history weighing down on you when you enter one of these places. So it's interesting to hear the same dynamic playing out on the East Coast in a very different kind of context. Although actually maybe not that different because in both places you have people who are brought into work and probably didn't quite know what sorts of conditions they were signing on for when they did that. Yeah. And I mean, I I really do like this this book, A Haunted History of Invisible Women, is really great. And in it, they they really powerfully connect these kind of what what I think they see as problematic narrative like ghost narratives to like the Mm -hmm. come like not only like the exploitation of these women in life but the exploitation of their like their spirits and death they they had a great they they wrote in the book almost every single printed ghost story associated with the site can be traced back to someone with something to sell an irony so thick you need a cutter's knife to slice through it the women of the triangle perform the ultimate invisible labor even in death right so they were exploited in life now they're being exploited in ghost form so yeah that's it's an interesting thing that's an interesting connection with the missions. Do you know the do you know the historian Tia Miles? Yes, she, her book that is a wonder. The Tales from a Haunt. Yeah, wonderful. wonderful and book. she makes a very similar argument regarding plantation ghost stories. Yeah, it's it's really really it's interesting what stories people feel okay commoditizing, right? Like, why is it that like the stories of enslaved black women from the South or like immigrant factory workers in New York City are open to commodification? I, like, I cannot fathom a comparable ghost story being told about 9-11, right? At least not yet. Yeah. And I, my hunch is it won't, right? Like, I, I'll, I, I mean, who knows? Who knows what'll happen? But like, yeah, like who's, who's, whose spectral presence is open to exploitation and what kinds it's yeah interesting ghost stories are often associated with various tragedies and although they can be exploitative they can also be a way for a community to you know essentially memorialize elements of the tragedy there's a uh historian and a performance artist named Koya Paz, who's looked at this in chicago primarily but also out out here in california where she's found that stories of lynchings for example might show up in the newspaper but you know there's a lot of pressure to prevent that during the uh, late 19th, early 20th century, prevent the word from getting out. But the ghost stories would often be a way for a community to memorialize that these things had occurred. And so, yeah, maybe, it, maybe, it, maybe part of like what this comes down to is who's doing it and for what purpose. Mm-hmm. Is it a company, like an unscrupulous tour company or plantation that like wants to attract like a paranormal audience? Is it someone who wants to memorialize a horrible, like, yeah, like the, the, the intention maybe matters here. Mm-hmm. And the design. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to think about the uh, ethics of creating these stories and maintaining them. You know, do they serve the community or do they do a disservice? Yeah, absolutely. And like, who's circulating which versions of it? In prepping for today, I I, I did as much research as I could through like NYU newspapers to see like mm-hmm. wh- who, who's talking about this, what ghosts are, what ghosts are, you know, students writing about, right? Because every Halloween there's like a spooky spots right. on campus or and this one doesn't come up very much this one students students don't seem overly 
which I think makes sense. I think it's a mm-hmm. complicated history to engage. And there are other more fun ghosts that you could talk about who, you know. Well, you know, one thing, something my wife and I have talked about quite a bit is I'm surprised that there are not ghost stories associated with AIDS. Reason yes. being that it's a widespread event, very tragic, obviously hit a particular community in a particularly hard way. And in a lot of other communities, that tends to be the sort of thing that creates ghost stories. It's a way for people to create narratives that help them contextualize a lot of what happened. I have yet to find a single one related to that, but I've actually gone and looked for like specifically LGBT ghost stories, and they're fairly consistently either about essentially... I guess you'd say administrative issues, you know, like law enforcement coming and breaking up uh, bars or people being put on trial for homosexuality in various places, or they're about kind of triumphant figures. So like there's a lot of ghost stories involving Harvey Milk. Really? I don't know a single Harvey Milk ghost story. I've got a- That's amazing. I'll send you the title. I've got a book that's filled with this stuff. But yeah, it's interesting that that is a chapter- of that community's experience that simply has not had any of these types of stories associated. My guess is mm-hmm. it's a combination of two things. One is, you know, it was just this huge tragic event. People are not comfortable doing something that might be seen as trivializing it. But I think another part of it is unlike everything involving that community prior to the 1980s, where there was a tendency to not want to put it on the official record. I mean, you know, the Kinsey Institute kept, got a lot of flack for even admitting that this, you know, homosexuality existed and was normal. By contrast, the media coverage of the 80s and 90s was extensive. And so there may simply not be a need to find another way to memorialize it because there is, in fact, an official record that covers it very well. That's interesting. I was having a conversation like literally just this morning about like the lack of memorialization of like the Spanish influenza, right? And how mm-hmm. that kind of got erased from cultural history. And I'm trying to think right now, I can't think of ghosts of that, but my, my hunch is that there are ghosts of that. Can you think of any? I've come across some. I can't think yeah. of any right now, but I have come across a few where it's like, okay, that's related to the Spanish flu. I, yeah. You know. But they, they're sporadic. It's not like, well, to go back to Tia Miles, it's not like plantations where every plantation has slave ghost stories for yeah. good or for ill it's more just sort of a yeah at this one but then you by contrast you get something that was a much longer period like uh, tuberculosis how so, many ghost stories are associated with the massive tuberculosis epidemics that occurred or i mean setting that aside like if we want to go to like england which is where i know more um oh black like, death the, yeah like yeah. i can think of like I can think of so like I can think of subsets within that that because there's so many right like oh the little girl locked in the house mm-hmm. there's one in York there's one in Newcastle there's many in London right like they're the types even repeat themselves there are so many of them whereas yeah. yeah that's really really interesting I have a joke with a friend of mine that you know in North America every uh, haunting's caused by an Indian burial ground <laughs> in England it's always a plague pit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like that idea that the dead are underneath us um, and like lingering, right? Like that's, there's something really potent about that for folks, like this idea of us living on top of the dead and like. One thing you had in your notes that you sent me about a triangle shirtwaist factory that I thought was interesting. Well, two things actually that really struck out to me. One was that most of the people are describing it as what they call the residual hauntings. You know, the (laughs) idea that you're seeing something replay, but it's not actively happening it's like you're watching a recording of it which seems fitting for something that's considered a tragedy because if it were interacting with you 
that might seem to in some ways trivialize it. Whereas if you're got the residual haunting, it's more like you're bearing witness to something that occurred. Heber and James call it a residual haunting. They're the ones who use that language for it. And What's interesting to me, what was interesting to me in their use of that in their book, when I think of residual hauntings, I think of sites where like the ghosts appear like, I don't know, every on a particular anniversary or like at 2, 2 a.m. each night, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like there are that many ghosts that actually appear at the factory. Like it doesn't seem like there's, you know, like a woman who walks across the ninth floor on the 25th of March each year. It's It feels like it's a kind of, yeah, like more like almost like a feeling of of like a residual feeling rather than a haunting, which is an mm-hmm. interesting iteration of residual hauntings that I haven't, I haven't seen people frame it that way before, I think. Yeah. It, that really struck me when I read that part in your notes. Another thing uh, that you cite from that same book was this quote, perhaps we all on some level identify with the precarious lives of the Gilded Age underclass. The obvious, even if unspoken, parallels between the average American worker and the 21st century and the garment workers of 1911 seems to resonate with nearly everyone. Yeah, in an age of a gig economy, there does seem to be some parallels where you take the job you can get and its conditions might not be great, but it's the only way you can make any money. Absolutely. Yeah, I thought that was such a great connection, too. And I mean, they're saying this as people who, you know, give and run to ghost tours, right? Mm -hmm. Like ultimate gig economy. If you think about like the placement of the Brown Building, for anyone who knows New York City, right? It's like right at Green in Washington Place. So it's like in the heart of NYU. NYU is an institution that hires many, many, many um, part-time workers. It's the number of part-time faculty there is very, very significant to say yeah. nothing of like non-tenure track faculty, you know, like the number of artists, like they're like, like people, delivery workers, like who are crossing through Washington Square in a given moment. Yeah. Like the intersections between people who are experiencing contemporary precarious, like a precariousness of labor. And yeah, like those workers, like, I think that's worth reflecting, right? I think that connection is really, really interesting. I mean, if we want to think, if we want to frame the story in those terms, maybe students' reluctance to engage that ghost or they're like, maybe not, I don't want to say lack of interest because I don't know that they're like not interested, but it doesn't, it doesn't factor high on like, you know, fun, spooky lists. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe that's part of it, right? Like if you're a college student, do you really want to dwell on like the future precariousness that you may encounter? Yeah. I don't know if if, if you're an 18 year old who wants to be an artist, if that's something you want to dwell too closely on. Yeah, a less generous reading that occurs to me also is these jobs in places like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, they still exist. They just exist offshore and we outsource the work to them rather than having it done by immigrants within the country. And there've been no shortage of horrible, you know, disasters at some of these factories that we get our own goods from even now. And I I think one other way you can look at it is by relegating this to a ghost story, you can say that's in the past. That doesn't happen anymore. When well, not only does it happen, we still pay for it to happen. It just happens in other countries now. Yeah, like a nice way of distancing ourselves from it, right? Like you're if you are standing near the outside the brown building, you are within like no less, you could within ten minutes you could get to many many fast fast fashion outlets, right? Like you could get to H and M. Like you you could move from like the, like the building where that 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 tragedy happened to places where you could quite comfortably and easily consume, you know, like a t shirt for ninety nine cents kind of thing. Right. Like that that geographic proximity, the ironies of that, right? The closeness of that, like the coupled with the fact that right NYU is a private university where students pay quite a lot of money to attend. Like the the layers there are really really yeah. What are we, what are we obscuring with that story? Like why? Yeah. 
Yeah, and this this particular location just it strikes me that the ghost stories can be used both to obscure and to illuminate aspects of history, you know, by either trying to make you reckon with it, but also allowing you to distance yourself from it. So I just find that rather fascinating. It's hard to say ghosts just do one thing, right? Like mm-hmm. they have such a plural social role. They can do so many kinds of labor in so many contexts. They're They're really, really interesting actors. I'll have to send you a link to a uh, doctoral dissertation I got on the Myrtle's Plantation about uh, tour guides and the performance of tourism there. But it touches on the fact that, yeah, there's these layers that are going on. And no matter what reading you give, it's not the only reading you can have. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting thing. Like I was talking with someone who's really interested in kind of producing ghost tourism recently, and she was really interested in how you do it ethically. And like, of course, there are ways to do that, but it's hard. It's complicated, like because ghosts are so slippery. Like you mm-hmm. can tell a story in one way, it can be consumed and repeated in another way. Like it's they're they're really hard. They're challenging little entities to deal with. Well, it, it, it's the creation of a uh, multifaceted narrative that could be read any number of ways. So it seems like we kind of came to the natural end of that one. Should we move on to another? Sure. Okay. Uh, Brittany Hall. Now, when I went and looked myself, Brittany Hall seems in some ways to be the most typical college ghost story. Yeah. And in some ways, I mean, not to make, I mean, ghost stories are always a little sad because they're about a dead person, but I think maybe more fun than some of the others. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so Brittany Hall, um, it's located on Broadway and East 10th. And it has, and it's a really beautiful building. It's like, I think one of the more beautiful buildings at NYU is, it's got like a really great kind of Gothic exterior. It's right across from Grace Church, which is also really beautiful and Gothic. And it used to be a luxury hotel, the Brittany Hotel. Um, And it was built in 1929. And it's now an NYU dorm. So like I said, NYU is very property greedy. It, It buys anything it can, especially for student housing, right? We, one of the quirks of, I think, being a student in New York City is the fact that I mean, at any given time, any number of the schools in New York City run out of housing and put you end up housing students in like actual hotels. And in the case of Brittany Hall, the the, the hotel has been converted into student housing, first year student housing. Mm-hmm. And so when it was a hotel, apparently there was a little girl who died in the elevator of the hotel. And stories differ. For some people, it was during the construction of the hotel. For some people, like the ghost, the the little girl who died was like a a resident of the hotel. But people tend to think that she was playing in the hallway and lost her balance and somehow fell into the elevator shaft and died. Um, And her name is Molly. And she's a really famous ghost. She even appeared in the New York Times in 2009, right, in terms of campus ghosts. So she's gotten quite a lot of attention. Molly appears apparently with some frequency in Brittany Hall. Molly really likes to play with the residents. It seems like especially female residents. If a group of women are gathered, hanging out or like chatting or playing, Molly will make herself known and kind of try to play with them. To me, the stories about Molly are on the more charming end of ghosts. I'm like, I wouldn't mind interacting with Molly. Molly can come visit me. So one woman reported that she was taking a shower and like heard like a giggle out in the... um like the the non-shower part of the bathroom. And like when she'd come out, there were like squiggle lines, like Molly had like run her finger through the mirror. Another woman reported, you know, she and her friends were hanging out and like a door slammed open and they were like, Molly, we don't want to play. And then the, Molly was maybe a little bit offended and kind of slammed the door and left. <laughs> um, so maybe Molly has a little bit of a temper. 
Another woman, and this is a little bit, little bit spookier. Um, one woman was in bed one night and sort of had like a moment of almost like sleep paralysis where she felt like she couldn't move and felt kind of like this ominous feeling. And she was scared to open her eyes. And when she did open her eyes, Molly was like a little girl. I think she said with maybe blonde hair was standing above her. And, you know, she, that was Molly. So yeah, Molly, Molly crops up for residents a fair bit. Um, and when you read or hear accounts of Molly, people seem like they have almost like a playful relationship with Molly. Like, it seems like there's a, like the ways in which some of these stories are recorded. Like, it seems like there is like this playfulness. Like, people will be like, people will, you know, like if they misplace an item in their dorm room, like they'll be like, maybe Molly moved it. And like, you know, they mean it, but they don't mean it. Like, there's mm-hmm. like a little like, 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 you know, like a complexity of belief in there. So, yeah, Molly, Molly's Molly's haunting um, Brittany Hall, apparently. Like, she seems like the most popular of NYU's ghosts. She seems like, the, like, if you Google NYU ghosts, I think you're going to find Molly. Like, I think Molly's, yeah, yeah Molly's going to, she's there for you. The the order in which I found things was Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, Molly. Yeah. And occasionally I'd find other things, but it consistently was those two. Yeah. And there are a lot. Like, I, I, at a certain point, I was like, I think I've read enough Molly narratives at this point. Like, if you go on Reddit, too, like, people have all of these Molly experiences. There's a few elements here that I think are interesting. One is that, like, on the surface, Molly seems very unique, but it's actually like a set of very generic things. Uh, so I'm doing research right now on a uh, location called the Brookdale Lodge, which is a, uh, hotel on the Santa Cruz mountains that's allegedly haunted. And one of the ghosts that's said to be there is Sarah who fell in the Santa Cruz, uh, the Brookdale lodge has this uh, place called the Brook room, which is a restaurant that has a natural Creek running through it. Oh, it's a cool place. Anyway, allegedly the daughter or niece or granddaughter, depending on which telling you hear of the owners was named Sarah. She fell in and drowned and now her ghost haunts it. But her ghost is always playful. And a lot of the things that you've described from Molly are nearly identical to the stories about Sarah. So that was the first thing that struck me is, oh, this, you know, almost a one for one match other than Molly fell down an elevator shaft. Sarah fell into the brook. But other than that, the way they're interacting with people is very similar. And I've encountered similar ghosts like this during my research in England. Like there was one museum and I'm not going to remember the little boy's name off the top of my head, but he's a little boy and he, like there was an accident, he accidentally died. Like, I think he like fell downstairs and maybe he broke his neck and yeah, like he just likes to hang out with guests. He wants to play, like he tickles their, like the back of their fingers or whatever. Like he, if, if you're like, if you have a toy with you, he'll kind of try to pull on the toy. Like it's, it's a very playful energy. It seems like a really strong contrast with the uh, the ghost of the little girl at Mary King's Close in Scotland, where that's she's trapped in this dark, horrible place and she may interact with you, but it's a sad child as opposed to a playful child. Yeah, like, and, and I think in his case and in Molly's case, and it sounds and sounds like in Sarah's case too, like they're almost not like happy because like in Molly's case, she can be a little cranky, it sounds mm-hmm. like. If you don't play with her, if you don't give her attention, she gets upset. It's not a particularly ominous thing. Like it doesn't hinge on a historical tragedy. I mean, it, obviously, it's more like down... an actual kid than a ghost. Yeah. It's just an invisible kid. Yeah, and like the result of almost like a random tragedy, not like mm-hmm. a systematic injustice or like a systematic problem. I mean, obviously, falling down. If she did fall down an elevator shaft, that's obviously horrible and sad. But like, it does make me wonder though, because like in the case of Sarah at the Brookdale Lodge, and I'm giving away stuff for a future episode, but whatever. There's a uh, ghost hunter and psychic who lives in Santa Cruz, who's done a lot of writing on this. And she actually went to track down Sarah and came to the conclusion that Sarah probably never existed. 
because she could find no birth record, no death record. There had been several deaths in that area associated with that creek, but none of them involved a relative of the owners and none of them were a young girl named Sarah. I haven't done the research for Molly, so mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I don't want to like speak out of turn, but the building was constructed in 1929. Yeah. Like if someone had died in the elevator shaft, it seems like there would be a New York Times article about that. Yeah. She would be a matter of historical record rather than. Mm-hmm. So th- that's another interesting kind of parallel, I think. A little kid falling down an elevator shaft is newsworthy. Yeah. Like 1929. I mean, I think our, I hope our building codes are safer now than they were then. But I think mm-hmm. even then, like that would be news. Yeah. None of the articles seem to link to any historical documentation about Sarah. Like, we don't know Sarah. I mean, sorry, we don't know um, Molly's last name. We don't know mm-hmm. why, what Molly was doing in the hotel. Who her, like, like, her parents might even be alive. It's wonderfully unverifiable. Yeah, which is, I mean, which makes it more fun in some ways. Yeah. Like, if you actually knew, like, it was Molly Smith and her grandma's, you know, sad. Like, that would kind of ruin the playfulness of it, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, it'd be hard to... Molly moved my iPhone charger. Like, yeah. It'd be hard to, hard to have that quite if it was a real living person. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, I think in both of those cases, probably it does add to the playfulness of the story. The fact that it's not a known person, not a tragedy, like a structural tragedy, not like, I, keep, it, I, feel, I, feel, yeah, I feel like I'm making light of death here. If anyone's Right. But, but, but I mean, it's, it's an eternally playful child as opposed to, you know, a kid trapped in a bad circumstance. Yeah. A few other things that are interesting about this one to me. Um, one is that you know, the uh, writing on the fogged up mirror. Yeah. Like that's just such a classic motif that I don't know if you've seen the TV show Ghosts. The the English one. Uh, either the English or the American. I've I've seen the English one. Okay. As I recall, I I don't recall if it's in the English one. It might be. I know it's in the American one. It becomes a running gag that that's how the ghosts are communicating with people. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. And I mean, that's like a horror movie thing too, right? You it come is. out of the shower and something's like written on the mirror. Like it's- Yeah. In the case yeah. of that TV show, it ends up being something like cook a pizza rather than oh. something more, you know, but you know- I would love, I would love a ghost to give me some cooking advice. That's amazing. <laughs> so, but that was another thing that struck me is just as Molly seems very unique, but is actually very similar to other ghost stories. That element is like straight out of standard ghost uh, folklore. And then you've got the case of the student who woke up with the uh, sleep paralysis. And are you familiar with David Hufford? Yes, yes, yes. His work is very interesting. Yeah. So it just immediately I thought, ah, core experience. Definitely. What's interesting to me about the ghost, the, so this is a different student dorm. I guess I can tell us a little bit about the ghost and then maybe it's worth comparing the two because they're both student housing. Yeah. And- so this is this is Hayden Hall, um, which is on West Third and Mercer, um, and it's a dorm for like NYU law students. So for me, I get the, I get this this ghost story comes primarily to me through Meg Cabot, who I'm a big fan of from The Princess Diaries. Uh, are you have you watched or read The Princess Diaries? I have not. It is a delight. It is like the book is a delight. The movie is a delight. Anyway, I'm I'm just going to fangirl about her. <laughs> so we've, after college and before, I guess she became, you know, author of The Princess Diaries. Um, she worked as a resident hall assistant director at Hayden Hall. And so when she was there, 
one of the residents in her dorm came to her with this sort of supernatural experience. Like the student had been in bed and, you know, the student woke up and saw a ghost at the end of the bed and had a lengthy conversation with the the ghost. And so the student kind of processed this and had processed whatever the ghost said to her and then went to Meg Cabot and said, did anyone die in my dorm room? I had this conversation with a ghost. And Meg Cabot reports being really kind of like freaked out by this and thinking maybe the student needed to seek mental health counseling. So she sent the student over to student health services, but students health services sent her back. Um, and then Meg Cabot had a conversation with um, the woman the student had talked to at, at counseling. And that woman had told Meg Cabot that when she was talking, the, when the counselor was talking to the student, the student described talking to this, you know, the student who was wearing a tie-dyed shirt. And this, the counselor said this, she was describing like a student who had died by suicide in that room 20 years ago, like almost exactly, you know. And so Meg Cabot was sort of like, oh my God, there's a ghost there. And apparently there'd been all of these kind of supernatural experiences like people's desks flying open and like people like you know desks breaking doors coming off the hinge that she just thought were like people were just kind of being rough on the dorm and after that she was like oh it's haunted there's a ghost and he's making his presence known so yeah that's that's it's a it's a good ghost story if anyone wants to read the whole of it if you you go to her website she has a great telling of it and there's a couple elements to this that i think are interesting one is you've got a lot of just weird experiences doors closing Mm -hmm. doors opening stuff like that the ghost story becomes the narrative that you can use to tie it all together which i just i find that interesting because i've seen that happen in other places where a place has a reputation for strangeness and then somebody will come up with sort of a central narrative and now everything gets attributed to that central narrative so that just struck me as being really interesting right off the bat but another thing that i thought was kind of interesting here is okay the student had this experience i'm going to send her in for to see a psychologist and if you look at the range of people who've had experiences that they interpret as ghostly it's pretty clear at least to me that the overwhelming majority of people who have these experiences are not having any problem with mental illness. There's something else going on. You know, whether or not it's ghosts is another matter, but clearly there's something else happening. And so I find it interesting that that would be the first response is, I think the student needs to see a counselor. Yes, I think so too. And I think the fact that then there's some kind like, and then the response to it isn't just like, oh, people have all kinds of experiences, but that there's an authentication of the, the ghost, right? That the counselor happens to know the man who died by suicide. They're able to like verify that there is in fact a ghost. Like it sets up this weird binary, like either you're hallucinating or there is a real ghost who has a historical identity, right? Like it's right. kind of a funny dichotomy. Which is interesting since there's a wide range of other possibilities. But yeah, the other thing that occurs to me just now is it also in a way matches the kind of triple element model of legend tripping. You know, mm-hmm. the student lives in a place that's got a re- weird reputation and has an experience. Then you know, rather than her going to the a place to have the experience, she has the experience, but now she has to be sent somewhere to have that experience explained. And then once it can't be explained by what they're assuming, which is a mental health problem, it creates, it adds to the legend of the place. So it's like a weird variation on the classic urban legend tripping thing of, 
you hear the story, you go to the place, you experience something, and then you come back and add to the legend. I think that's a really great way of interpreting Meg Cabot's story. Because when she concludes the story, like there are two points that she almost makes from it. One, she was like, the spooky thing was that I was so close-minded. I, that's mm-hmm. not an exact quote, but that's close to a quote. And also then that like she takes this experience and turns it into a character in one of her other book series. So like not only does it become an NYU legend, it then becomes right like a whole fictional book series, the mediator one. It's mm. like the, like it's around this like psychic kind of character who's kind of like, I guess, based on the student. So it has this whole big life. It comes, yeah, like most, yeah, like legend tripping. That that actually is really interesting. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like I, when I encountered this, I mean, I really love young adult literature. It's like my, I don't want to say guilty pleasure. There are no guilty pleasures. I, I love, I love young adult literature. And so, and she's just like such a good writer. It's, it's a really fun series. If you know anyone who's a young adult um, or, you know, an old adult. I have a 10 year old. She might enjoy that. So it's delightful. But yeah, it's so interesting how it kind of builds outward. And what's also interesting to me. So when we're when we were prepping for today, I think this is the only NYU student who haunts NYU. Like this is the only Mm -hmm. of all of the stories we're going to talk about. This is the only one who's a student. Yeah, so that's interesting because you've got the the child who dies at a hotel, but that yeah. implies a either a life in the city or visiting the city. But in some way, it's tied into New York's identity as a place where, you know, it's not urban sprawl. People live in hotels. They live in high rises. And of course, they're going to have a death there. You've got the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, which ties into the industrial history of the city. And in both of these cases, it's very clearly... It's New York. So of course these things are here because it's New York, not because it's a college campus. Whereas this one is, this is here because it's a college campus. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, and it's interesting. And if we want to zoom out, right, in each one of these cases we've talked about so far, there's this like theme of transience almost, right? Mm-hmm. College students come to NYU. They're here for, you know, four years, however long they're here. I guess that's a dorm for law students. So three years. So they're, they're almost temporary residents in the same way that Molly was a temporary resident of the hotel, like the, mm-hmm. like and like the many of the women who were killed in the the factory, right, were like immigrants who were hoping for different work and hoping to move up. To, like like there's this, this interesting theme of transience that cuts across it. Which you know, we talked about Tia Miles earlier, and that's a direct contrast where you're a slave on a plantation. That's your life. You're never leaving, and now even in death you can't leave. And here you've got these people where this should have been a transient state, yeah. but now they're stuck in the transient state. Yeah, like they're rooted to it. Like the student who, yeah, like this poor NYU student, this factory workers, like Molly, poor Molly. I imagine like one thing that's like, you know, part of New York identity is like who gets to be a New Yorker, who counts as a New Yorker? How long do you have to live in New York City before you can truly call yourself a New Yorker? If you're from Staten Island, you even count as a New Yorker, right? Like there are all of these really kind of local ways of kind of hashing out identity. And that's something I think NYU students are very sensitive to like are they here are they part of the city are they visitors are they tourists like what's their relationship to the city so it's interesting to me that like these these themes of transience belonging they they come up again and again in the ghost stories like that's i think kind of like an interesting thing for them i don't know if they do reflect on it but it it intersects interestingly in my opinion with many components of their like student experience well it makes me think about like uh the work that folklorists do where they're trying to tie in the content of the stories to things and sometimes they're seeing parallels but is that what the people telling the stories are actually experiencing and it's hard to say yeah Absolutely. I I don't know. I, I like it doesn't seem like people are doing 
I kind of don't suspect Molly's cause for a lot of contemplation. Like, I don't think right. that anyone's doing deep thinking on Molly. Poor Molly. I don't know. I don't know how widely told the student who's haunting Hyden Hall is told either. I've seen it reported in the news. I have no contact with NYU law students. I talked to someone who was a former law student, and he, but they she didn't live on campus, so she, she she had no idea. She was like, "Oh, that's so interesting." One thing, though, that uh, like a contrast between Molly and this student that's interesting is the uh, student seems to be framed in a much more tragic way, whereas Molly's death may have been tragic, but Molly herself is a playful figure, whereas the student is the cause for alarm and maybe you need to get your head checked yeah and it's interesting right because the woman who saw the ghost didn't seem concerned she Mm -hmm. seemed just like oh did anyone die in the room that's i'm curious whereas the woman hearing the story was very concerned yeah talking about that story too right is hard campus suicides are such a complicated hard thing and schools really struggle with that student well-being like it it touches on a load of things that i think are really sensitive so i'm i'm kind of glad it isn't more pop i'm glad molly's more popular i'm glad people are focused on molly not this you also uh stated in the notes that you sent me that a lot of the tour guide operators seem to get into, at the very least, tacky and possibly unethical territory of highlighting suicide rate amongst students in doing their tourism. Yeah, like there are a lot of stories that tour guides seem to be circulating about NYU students who died by suicide and whether or not they haunt particular sites on campus. They're the only ones to kind of go back to what we were talking about earlier, right? Like the only people who seem to circulate these narratives seem to have a financial interest in in them taking off and them being part of their tours. I've never heard any other campus stories about about suicide, notably. But if you go to some of their websites, or if you, there's one I took, one tour I took, and I won't name it obviously, but where they they walk by our library and point like our our library and be like, and they kind of point out point it out and suggest that it's very very haunted because students have have died there. And yeah, like I think that's a complicated thing, right? Universities need to be really careful about mm-hmm. how they talk about that to avoid deepening the problem. Almost, it's complicated. Well, it puts me in mind of a uh, place in Japan, a uh, national park that has it, it has a lot of suicides in it. And the reasons why so many occur there are open to question. The most plausible explanation I've heard is it's simply a place where you can go and be unobserved. So it's a convenient location. There may be more to it than that. I What I know about Japan, you could fit on a three by five card. So, you know. Same. But nonetheless, a lot of American paranormal enthusiasts have really gotten invested in the idea of, you know, the suicide forest. And there have been a number of people who've made money. Like I remember there's a guy who does YouTube videos for a living who managed to he he didn't know that he was going to get a uh, suicide on video, but he did. And then where you think he might edit that out or not show it he showed it specifically because he knew it would get a lot of views and bring in a lot of ad revenue and so you get into these kind of weird places where you've moved away from you know dealing with a socially complex issue and you're just being exploitative yeah i think that's i think that's happening in this case like these companies that are sort of like i i don't if you look through NYU, I don't see anyone saying our our, our main library on Washington Square's campus is can't is haunted. Mm-hmm. Like there's no, it doesn't crop up. No one has reported it to me. Like I've asked around, no one's like, oh, it's so haunted. It's not a particularly spooky building either. It's it's very 
modern. It's And yeah, so to kind of talk about that in this way, especially in light of the fact that so much research suggests on college campuses that the contagion effect around suicide is mm-hmm. very real. I it, Yeah, I think it's concerning. I think that's a very concerning thing to do. Yeah, the, it, it's a matter of dubious ethics at best. I Yeah, very much agree. So most of the other ones, other than Washington Park, have to do with either, it looks like buildings that are used for instruction or again, uh, dormitories. Mm -hmm. And since we're already on the subject of dormitories, let's stick with the dormitories for the moment. You've got Diagostino Hall. Yes. I love this. You've got, you quote uh, Schoenberg, and Aaron Burr appears in a horse-drawn carriage, likes to pick up college (laughs) co-eds. And the only notes that I've got in here are just in the margins I've written, stupid, sexy Aaron Burr. I know, especially post-Hamilton. I'm like... (laughs) Like, I'm like, what a moment for Aaron Burr. <laughs> and yeah, no. He, so I only found one reference to this story from Philip um, Schoenberg's 2009 book, Ghosts of Manhattan, Legendary Spirits and Notorious Haunts. I, in part, included it as a Hamilton fan. I'm like, if, there, mm-hmm. if Aaron Burr is showing up on campus, we need to think about this. And it's worth noting, I'm picturing like the singer from the musical, not, you know, like the <laughs> less exciting 1700s fellow. So yeah, that's that's the only, the line you read is what I know about it. I love the idea of it. I love the idea of Aaron Burr, you know, dropping by his former stables and interacting with the folks and yeah, the the college co-eds as, as Schoenberg says. But I, I just love that in a horse-drawn carriage likes to pick up college co-eds. I, I okay, I don't live in New York. Maybe horse-drawn carriages are a dime a dozen there for all I know. But if somebody showed up in a horse-drawn carriage, we'd certainly consider it odd out here. <laughs> I Yeah, yeah. We we have them in Central Park and they are very contentious, right? Like every mm-hmm. year we try to ban them because they're not very kind to the horses. So the storm is on 110 West 3rd. There are no horse-drawn carriages down there. If a horse-drawn carriage showed up there, I cannot... I certainly wouldn't be jumping in. That wouldn't be my first instinct. (laughs) One one would think, you know, you're not supposed to get in a car with a stranger. (laughs) Some strange guy in archaic clothing coming up in a uh, horse-drawn carriage. It's like the far side cartoon ways nature says (laughs) do not touch. Yeah, yeah. I I hope our co-eds, I I feel weird calling them co-eds. I hope our college students aren't doing that. I hope they're not jumping in. I don't know where he got this story. He doesn't have sources, but it's it's a good book, actually. If you're looking for like New York legends, it's it's a pretty delightful. And he's a PhD from NYU history. So it's it's good history of New York stuff. But yeah, Aaron Burr, I'll be keeping my eyes out for him the next time I'm near Washington Square. And then you've got uh, the Wunsch building. You don't state what the building's currently used for. So it's on the NYU Tandon campus. Um, and it's it's the one I interact with the most as someone whose office is on NYU mm-hmm. Tandon. This is the one I was most upset about when I was researching. So it's on Bridge Street. It was It's formerly the Bridge Street Methodist Church. It was originally built in 1847, and it was the first independent Black church in Brooklyn. These days, it's, I think, the headquarters. It's, it's primarily office build, an office building for mm-hmm. NYU Tandon. It houses the admissions building and just like other admin offices. It's a very cool building. Like, it's a visually yeah. striking building. And apparently in the 1800s, it was part of the the Underground Railroad in Brooklyn, which is a really cool piece of history. Like I know there are a number of sites um, in Brooklyn Heights and downtown Brooklyn that are tied to the Underground Railroad. And I know there's been a lot of effort to preserve them and kind of make sure that history doesn't get erased in like gentrification and like rebuilding. And so apparently there are there are ghosts in the building of the Wunsch building. And I've heard that they're tied to the Underground Railroad. I don't have a ghost story, though. 
So I heard this in a few places. I heard from two people in real life, in real life, in, inter- in social interaction. Um, one mm-hmm. person I know who works in public safety at Tandon had heard this. And another person who works in like buildings management had heard it. Because we were like kind of chatting about Brooklyn history. And if you've written a book about ghost, like ghost tourism, you end up, people end up telling you you're ghost. If, if anyone has anything ghost related, you get to hear it. So I heard that from two places. And then I saw a reference to it on Reddit. But there's no, there are no details. Like I don't know anything about the ghosts who haunt it. I haven't met anyone. I just, it's almost like a rumor that there are ghosts there. Sounds to me like the people on Reddit are just being lazy. Yeah, I know. I'm like, what are you guys doing? You get on this. Well, it, it does make me wonder though, because if it's a, if the, if the building has interesting or unique architecture, people might assign ghost stories to it without knowing any of the history. At the same time, being the first independent black church in the area and being a site of the Underground Railroad would imply that it would have ghost stories associated with that. But if you've got no details to go on, then is it that there's something about the history that's making people apply ghost stories? Or is it just, oh, that's a weird looking building. It must be haunted. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. I don't know how widely known it is that it's part. it was part of the Underground Railroad. It's so NYU at Tandon, it looks visually very different than Washington Square, right? Which looks like very wet. I mean, this is it looks like Greenwich Village. It's it's got the beautiful old buildings. Downtown Brooklyn is very like a lot of corporate buildings. Like my office is in a building that has like several of the floors are NYU, but one is like Department of Education from NYC. It's like a mixed use high rise building. And our classrooms are in buildings like that too. Like and some of them are in old buildings that were originally NYU Polytechnic, but like it has a very different character than the Washington Square campus. Like I'm so bad with architectural styles, but it's almost like a Roman temple. Like it's it's visually very, very beautiful in a place where nothing else around it is particularly striking. And it kind of opens up onto like the Metro Tech Plaza, which is this highly trafficked place of NYU students, but like workers from like JP Morgan Chase, Department of Education, just a whole a whole bunch of people. And so it does have a different feeling. Um, it feels very like it feels significant in a way that the other buildings don't, but I don't think I don't think its history is very well known. Like I was talking to a colleague and they they didn't know any of it. Like they're like, really? Hmm. I mean, they didn't actually even know we owned the building. But maybe it is something like that. Like the like the rupture with the rest of the, the like the architecture around it gives it a feeling of heaviness, like a sense that there's something important there. I don't and, know. Maybe. In the neighborhood my wife grew up in, there's this old early 20th century farmhouse. Not the Winchester house, but a half mile away from it. And all the housing around it was built sometime between 1950 and uh, 1990. And it's interesting if you get familiar with architectural history, which for my current job, I have to be, you can actually look and see when the various things were built. Interesting. But in the middle of it is this one house that stands out. And she was telling me that uh, when she was visiting her parents not long back, somebody on the street started telling her about that house being haunted. And I think it's a similar thing. The house is just visually so different from everything else around it that there has to be something about it. Yeah, like maybe just even like by virtue of the difference, like a visible reminder of history, right? Like stuff happened here before, you know, the high rise building and the like the Cadamange were put in, right? Like maybe there's, yeah, maybe that's, that's part of it, what this speaks to. It's it's interesting that there's like the sense that it's haunted without there being a ghost. Like yeah. I find that very interesting. And then we've got Furman Hall. 
That one's a fun one. I think that one yeah. ends up on a lot of ghost walks in New York City. And I wanted to bring this in as the last of these. We'll get to the Washington Square Garden as the final one, but as the last of the building, simply because this is the one you've got the brief mention of Aaron Burr, but this is the one with the real celebrity ghost. So this is Edgar Allan Poe. So Furman Hall was built in the early 2000s. Ground was broken for the building in 2001. It opened to the public in 2004. If we're trying to picture it, it's just south of the park. It's between Sullivan and Thompson, and it's it's a big building. Before this building was constructed, though, there were two previous buildings um, that stood in its place. The one that really matters for our sake, it was a, a kind of like a typical row house. And apparently Edgar Allan Poe lived there for a couple of months between 1844 and 1845. Like I think I've heard in some places six months and a few, I've heard eight months. He wasn't a long-term resident here, but he apparently lived here between 1844 and 1845. He wrote part of The Raven here. He had lots of connections to like the literary circles in Greenwich Village at the time. He had some connections to like early NYU. Like I think he was invited to read one of his poems at commencement, but he didn't finish the poem. So he he like said he was sick and stayed in bed and got kind of, I think, drunk, according to the story I read. Sounds like wild times. Before NYU built this new building, Furman Hall, Poe had been spotted many times by tourists, by visitors, in the window of his former home. And so people had like people had walked by at night and just seen him, seen his figure illuminated like, like walking in the building. When NYU bought the building, they tried to be respectful. Like there was, I think, a pretty big an outcry against them buying and tearing down these buildings. People were Mm -hmm. upset about the lack of like historic preservation. So in light of that, um, NYU tried to incorporate as many features of the two previous buildings into its new growth. So if you look at it, you probably see the gestures they made. Inside the building, though, they have the original banister from um, the house Poe occupied. They have some of Poe's, like some items associated with Poe. They have some of the bricks from the building. And there's like a Poe room where they have a variety of artifacts and, you know, the, the bricks are visible. And so apparently in Furman Hall, people say that like some people, so this is another kind of controversial ghost. Some people say, oh, they tore down the building. How could he still be there? Other people say that they have seen Poe um, in the in the law building. He's in wandering the halls or like going up and down the staircase yeah, like that's so he he apparently pops up. So which is yeah, pretty famous. Walking around trying to figure out where they put his kitchen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why does this banister not go anywhere? Like, what's it <laughs> doing? Confusing. I yeah, it's exciting, right? Because Schoenberg called Poe America's most popular ghost, since apparently he haunts sites in New York, Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts. Like apparently his ghost quite gets around. I guess it's nice that NYU is one of the spots he haunts. I'm remembering there's a radio show called This American Life. Years ago, I heard an episode where they were talking about a hotel that was allegedly haunted by one of the people who'd helped to design it or finance it, I forget which. And when they decided to try to trace down this ghost story, they also found out that his ghost allegedly haunts an office building across town and allegedly haunts the YMCA where he used to go swimming and essentially everywhere had this guy's ghost. And so I immediately thought of that when I read... uh, that Edgar Allan Poe is in all of these places. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that, right? I guess he really liked or hated. I guess he had deep relationships with everywhere he occupied, which, which is nice. I, I don't know. Is it nice? I kind of like the idea of like the ghost tour circuit where they just you know, have to hit different towns. You know? <laughs> yeah, I guess if you're like a big Edgar Allan Poe enthusiast, maybe you'd have to go to every place he haunts. And 
for this one, I actually, I don't know anyone who's seen this, but I'd people had heard of this ghost story. Like I was telling colleagues and they're like, oh, I did hear that Edgar Allan Poe haunted this building. Because I, when I've shared these stories with folks, a lot of people have been like, I never heard about that. That's interesting. Like, like there wasn't, there isn't a lot of ghost knowledge and people I kind of casually interviewed about this. People knew about Molly and they knew about Edgar Allan Poe. One of the things that's interesting to me about Edgar Allan Poe in this one is it sounds like his relationship to this place is probably not very important in his life. Yeah, I think very, very minor. But, you know, he gets associated with it. It reminds me of uh, a place in Monterey called the Robert Louis Stevenson House because he lived there for a short time. Well, Robert Louis Stevenson was British. He was from Britain came out to California for a little while, went back to Britain. Most of the significant events of his life took place in Britain. But for some reason, this house in Monterey is now known for its association with them. Funny. He at least was at that house longer than it sounds like Edgar Allan Poe was in this one. But it's just kind of interesting that people would associate, make those associations. In the case of um, Poe, I, I was the way I was thinking about it is that Greenwich Village, part of its destination image in terms mm. of like New York City tourism, it's like literature, it's art. It's so closely associated with like the beat movement and poetry. Like I think having like yet another literary ghost figure is I think it works for that destination image, right? Like mm, that makes sense. a little farther. Like I think like Dylan Thomas haunts the White Horse, the, the White something he haunts. It is the White Horse Tavern. You're absolutely right. Which is in walking distance of Pose. So like I think it's like Ooh, another literary ghost for um, this very literary neighborhood. That's kind of how I was seeing it. A place that has sort of a bohemian reputation. Yeah, yeah. I think that's part of it. That makes sense. Yeah, he, he fits in in a, in a spectral context. Especially since uh, people tend to see him as being this very bohemian figure. Whether or not that's historically justified, it's the popular conception of him. Yeah, absolutely. Right? This like tortured guy. Like he's, yeah, he fits in really well. Like, like but Dylan Thomas... He he when he he died in the West Village. According to legend, he had 18 shots of the last whiskey of his life at the White Horse Tavern on November 3rd. Then he collapsed outside. So yeah, he's he's that's like for New York City haunted places, that's like a big the White Horse Tavern is that and um two of by lands are both like downtown haunted hotspots. All right. So let's talk about Washington Square Park. And my reason for wanting to talk about this last is that weirdly, I think it ties in with a story from Colorado. Ooh. But I'll let you give kind of the rundown of uh, Washington Square Park and then we'll go from there. Okay. So much like a lot of the ghosts I've talked about here, the actual hauntings are not, there aren't, you know, I, I don't think they're as exciting as some other ghost stories I've encountered. But people report at night, especially in Washington Square Park, um, people have seen those sort of floating green lights over mm -hmm. Washington Square Park park walked into cold spots they've had a very uneasy feeling as they walk through washington square park at night and so it has a really interesting long history and i should say for folks who don't know nyu like washington square park is kind of like the heart of nyu it's the buildings are all around it students along with like all kinds of other folks right like artists people just passing through tourists it's like a really vibrant public space in new york city there's like a beautiful water fountain in the center there's like almost like an arc de triomphe kind of structure at the entrance like it's beautiful it's a very very lively place and so yeah in the daytime it's like hopping it's it's like never quiet there like it's it's almost too noisy if you're a quiet person but people love it people really really enjoy it and it has a really interesting history so very very early in new york city's history it served as new york's largest potter's field where the indigent people who were unclaimed their bodies were buried there and so i believe it was established as a potter's field around 
1797, and it served as one for about 28 years. So burying people who were impoverished, people who had suffered from various illnesses. I think a lot of cholera victims are in there. And by the time it closed, there were 28,000 bodies buried in Washington Square Park. And at the time, right, for much of its very early history in like the late 1700s, early 1800s, it was like a really like undesirable piece of land. All of the important stuff was happening in lower Manhattan, and it was kind of the countryside, people would go up there to do nefarious things. Duels were held there. I believe there was at least one execution that was held there. Interestingly, there is an elm tree in the park. It's been there for a very long time. The late 17th century as the era period when we know it was there. Yeah. The yeah. Yeah. And it's it's called by some on ghost tours primarily, I think, as the hangman's elm or the hanging tree. It's, it's still there. It's still in the north part um, of Washington Square Park. And yeah, like no one was actually hanged on it, but one one woman was actually hanged on gallows near it. Um, so mm -hmm. it, it does have this kind of, you know, 20,000 bodies, like duels, executions, like it has a fairly bloody history. But New York City grows, right? Like anyway, New York City starts in lower Manhattan and it expands upwards. So by the 1820s, people were looking for more lands and people wanted to expand north to the Washington, to this area. And so in 1826, the former potter's field was turned into a military parade ground named for George Washington. And people started, you know, building beautiful mansions around the house, like really beautiful houses around it. And it became quite a fashionable and desirable area. In 1849 to 1850, the military parade ground was turned into an actual, actual park. So it became officially Washington Square Park. And during this time, right, all of those bodies remain buried underneath the park. The elm tree, the hanging elm, if you will, um, remains in its corner. But, you know, life continues to kind of grow and prosper around it, right? Like Washington Square Park, you know, it has this very vibrant period in the 1800s. It becomes this bohemian period in the 20th century. It's a very, a very vibrant area today. And throughout all of this, all of these bodies remain underneath the park, underneath this park where people crisscross all the time. And one of the kind of recurring themes in the recent history of the park is that people, anytime they go to do anything in the park, go to fix a water main line, go to do a repair, and you end up either unearthing a dead body or hitting kind of like a grave marker. So this kind of buried history resurfaces with some frequency. Like in 2008, people were testing soil in the park and they came across four skeletons. Like it's a very real kind of deathly presence right underneath the surface. And so when people are seeing these like floating green lights or feeling these like uneasy kind of uncanny feelings as they cross through the park at night, some people kind of connect those feelings, those observations to like this buried history underneath the feet. One of the things that really struck me when I read this was well, two things. One is the idea of a place of burial being turned into a park in the 19th century is really not that odd because mm -hmm. a lot of cemeteries, uh, you know, the modern landscape cemeteries were developed as much as urban open spaces as they were as places to bury the dead. It wasn't yeah. that odd to go have a picnic in the cemetery. It wasn't considered grim. It was just, well, hey, this is a pleasant place. This is, of course, where we're going to go. Yeah, like the idea that to be like a fully traveled person in America, you needed to see Niagara Falls and Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, right? Like mm -hmm. that's, I mean, like the, the peak of, you know, 1800s accomplishment as a traveler. Yeah. And so the idea of turning into a park just from a 19th century standpoint, that doesn't seem all that weird, even though it seems weird to us now. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that really struck me is, are you have you ever heard of Chessman Park in Colorado? I haven't. So Chessman Park is an area in Denver that was a cemetery. And as Denver expanded, 
there was a uh, decision made to build houses there. And they did hire people to remove the bodies, but the people they hired didn't really know what they were doing. So a lot of body parts and some entire bodies got left behind. And during a lot of various things that occurred, like at one point, some really bad storms led to some localized flooding and bodies that had been partially unburied really began to come to the surface, stuff like that. Place has a reputation for being haunted, but it's very similar to what you describe here, where there's not a whole lot of specifics, but there are a lot of general feelings and sort of, yeah, these weird things happen there. And so as I was reading this, I immediately thought about Chesman Park. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good connection. And I think in both cases, it sounds like the making like the kind of almost unintentional or like non-consensual vis- making visible this past, like the surfacing of the bodies, right? Like mm-hmm. this unpleasant reminder that like there was this previous history that we're living on top of, like this breaking through, like almost like the idea that like, oh, we're all living in a modern world and cemeteries are far away from us. Like, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. Well, and it really does, I think, illustrate the fact that no matter what you do, you don't get away from the history of the place you're at. It's true. It's so true. And I think we think of cities like there's a lot of literature that suggests that cities are almost they're more likely to be perceived as almost like secular like hubs of secularity like Mm -hmm. places that are like hyper rational hyper rationally designed but like i think places like the park you're describing colorado or washington square park right like they're places where the past is very visible and the presence of like supernatural feelings supernatural encounters also kind of troubles this idea that they're secular that they're fully modern yeah i think that's interesting Yeah, it sort of tears at the distinctions we tend to like to make between, you know, we're here in the present, the past doesn't affect us, unless, of course, you know, a body happens to get dug up while they're working on the sewer system for your house. We live in a very secular, rational world, except mm, as much as a lot of us like to claim that that's how we view the world, when you really get down to it, almost all of us believe you're rational things. Of course. Obviously, New York City has such a really interesting history, like a really for, for you know, like in terms of like post-colonial U.S. history, like it has a very long, interesting history of colonial development, all of that. But I don't think that's necessarily part of how everyday New Yorkers like that's not what they focus on. Like no one's like, you know, you're going to work, you're going you're focused on like growth and the development and expansion and high rises and all of that and i think these moments where like the the past kind of creep through and make themselves felt they're felt as uncanny even if there aren't necessarily ghost figures like walking across the green like that juxtaposition between like everyday modern life and like this feeling of like oh wow this this land's been occupied for a long time i'm their bodies i there's history literally underneath our feet like it's i think an, an unnerving feeling for folks you look at a film like Poltergeist and uh, you know, the fact that they moved the tombstones but not the bodies in the cemetery is what caused the house to become haunted. It's an idea that is really appealing to us that you know there could be something hidden that we're not aware of and that that thing may be dangerous. Yeah. And in this case, right, like it was a potter's field. So like poor records were kept, like mm-hmm. all of these unmarked graves that like kind of fear of anonymity and death almost. Yeah, it all kind of converges interestingly there. You could also, though, see it as a way of viewing people in the past as resisting the anonymity and death. You know, mm-hmm. they're making themselves known and making a nuisance of themselves. So even though you might know their name, you can't ignore them the way that maybe they were ignored in life. Yeah, absolutely. Like they're still they're still here hundreds of years later. They're going to trouble the college students and like business people walking through the park at night. Like they want to be remembered. I think that's interesting. I think also one of the things with Washington Square Park, and I I included this quote because 
it's a funny moment of student playfulness. Like, obviously, like we've been talking about Washington Square Park in a fairly serious, somber way. But one of the things, one of the students writing about ghost stories for one of the NYU student blogs wrote, thinking about like the hauntedness of Washington Square Park. What if the New York Police Department kicks us out of the park at midnight because of the vengeful ghosts that come out at night? So even even with like all of this kind of serious history, there's a playfulness. Like, you know, what if we're getting kicked out because the ghosts are going to get us? Like, <laughs> I, I like that. Like, I like that level of playfulness with this kind of history. I think that's nice. I will say, though, when I was doing this work, it was so interesting to me. Like, I teach at the engineering school and I asked several of my classes of first years, like, do you guys know any ghost stories from campus? And they they were very, they laughed at me very hard. They're like, of course we don't. They thought it was a very silly question. And not very many people I talked to had ghost stories. Like, I know a lot of people who are alums or spent a lot of time there no one no one had anything spooky so it's even though we've spent the last like last bit talking about it like I don't I'm not convinced it's a terribly central part of many people's experiences of NYU. It's interesting to think that it may be more of a, as you've suggested a few times, an aspect of tourism than campus life. Yeah, because so many of the ghosts we've talked about, excluding the Brooklyn ghosts, they're located in and around Washington Square. Mm -hmm. And a great number of ghost walks that happen in New York City take place there because it's more so than other places in New York, like there are still, you know, brownstones, there's still architecture that harkens back to the 19th century. Like it's atmospheric in a way that like, I can't imagine doing that in like Times Square, for instance. Right. Yeah. Like I think that industry has a very strong interest in sites like Washington Square that are, you know, you could do like a nice little one mile walk and stop in different places. I think a lot of these stories that we've talked about are maybe more, I bet tourists to the Washington Square Park know more of these stories than like the typical sophomore. Mm -hmm. which is, I think, interesting. With the possible exception of Molly. Yeah, I think Molly is real. I mean, I'm... You think Molly's actually part of campus folklore? Yes, thank you. Not that I'm not verifying Molly's reality, but I think she does come up. Like, I think she's... People in that hall, in that dorm, I think, have... I think they chat about her. Poe, maybe a little bit. I don't think anyone's talking about Aaron Burr's ghost. But Um, they should be. I mean, yeah, if the carriage shows up, are they going to get in? Like, yeah. Gotta make good choices, <laughs> which I think is interesting. I think that's an interesting part of college folk, like this, of NYU as an institution so far. But you do have this unique situation. It sounds like it's probably due to the fact that NYU is spread out throughout the city as opposed to being a centralized campus the way most are, where the ghost stories become more a function of tourism in the city than an aspect of campus life, which is a real contrast with most campus ghost stories. I don't think that's accidental. I think that reflects NYU culture pretty mm-hmm. pretty well. Like I think that reflects NYU's sense of identity, like that like there's this real blurring between NYU and the city and I think that its ghosts show that, which is interesting. I mean, I know none of my none of when I went to college, the few ghosts we had were all students, right? Like they mm-hmm. all had really deep ties to the college or they were faculty. But at NYU, not the case. They're very cool, very powerful people in some cases. And are unpowerful in the case of the the potter's field or the triangle shirtwaist factory. Yeah, certainly. Well, thank you very much for being on again. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This was such a fun conversation. Thank you for having me. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. 
You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!